hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on debugging data races. So I have a little tale to tell um, of, of something that, that bit me uh, a long time ago, but actually the, the same variation, the same thing in a dozen variations, I ended up debugging over and over and over again until I got really good at spotting this pattern. So in this particular case, in the guts of the you know, core hotspot JVM, there's some code that basically said, if some method has some jitted code, then return true or false. And if it was true, you would then follow it with, you know, method.get the code and then code.execute. And upon rare occasion, this job, this operation would throw a null pointer exception. But it was extremely rare. And you know, looking at each of the parts, it was very clear that everything was doing the right thing. If method had code was testing for the presence of a code variable to be null or not, the get code was simply returning it, and the code at execute was simply doing some field execution load off of the, the loaded value. Um, and so how could this be crashing? So, so backing up a second, let me talk over a little bit about what is a data race and sort of why I care. So, you know, kind of formally, a data race is when two unrelated threads are accessing the same memory and at least one of the threads is writing, and there's no language level ordering declaring what order the two reads and the one write uh, are going in. And yet more informally, there's just a broken attempt to use more CPUs um, because you know one CPU got too slow because the end of frequency scaling, right? So everyone's got a four, eight, 16 core sockets. As soon as you launch the second, third, 14th thread, um, you're being exposed to data race. So let's talk about this data race thing um, in a little more detail. In my case, I had you know, one thread that after you got through the, the compiler optimizations and the inlining, down at the core assembly level, it basically said, load a field called code, and if it was null, go off, do something else, go run this in the interpreter, um, and otherwise do some setup, and a little bit later, go load the field code again, and then call execute on it. Which would then go jump to some you know assembly that had been jitted and, and take off and go. Meanwhile, this is on a you know busy Java virtual machine process, and of course other threads are running and they're busy loading code, which sometimes invalidates jitted code and would reset the the code pointers to null, basically flushing an old cache. Um, and then the, when the cache got flushed, these code pointers got set to null. So one thread was reading, and the other thread was writing a null. So right away I have two threads. One's reading, one's writing, and there's no language level ordering between them. So it's all the parts I need for a data race. <clears throat> so if you look at this in, in a little more detail, it turns out the race is kind of narrow, and yet it seemed to happen fairly reliably. What was going on here? So, you know, the one thread who's reading, if he gets in there, both his reads done before the, the flushing thread sets a null, it's all good. He reads some pointer to some jitted code. It's not null, so he carries on. A little bit later, he reads it again. It's still not load. He executes, life is good. Sometime later, gets set to null. Too late, you're, you're executing code. It's all good. Or if he's after the second, the second thread cleared the cache, he would read it once, see the null, and say, um, oops, I think the local Air Force is running uh, jets over my house. Sorry for the background noise. Um, you, you would see that it was null and you would bail out and never do the second load. So, you know, kind of potluck based on OS thread scheduling. And so it was kind of rare in testing, but it turned out under heavy load, it would be the case you were constantly jumping into the, the inside of the VM, looking to see if somebody, some method had some code. 
And at the same time, you're constantly loading classes and jitting, and so the code pointers are getting flipped to null and not null back and forth a lot. So the crashes were routine in production, although rare in any sort of light testing mode. You had to have a heavy load, and then it would show up pretty commonly. So now let's take a little more peek under the hood here. What are the rules on a data race, really? You know, what can I say about it? Um, is it possible that, that you know, uh, I, you, you all have heard of the volatile keyword. Is it possible that I need it? Do I need it on all threads? Do I need it on all variables? What are the rules? Um, so, so here's a common scenario. Someone wants to produce some complicated thing and write it to a, a global shared place and then set an, some sort of flag saying it's ready, it's initialized. And the other threads come along and they read the flag and if it's false, they say, ah, data's not ready, they do something else. Um, otherwise, they go fetch it, they go read the data. And so one fellow writes twice. He writes the good bits and he writes an init flag saying it's ready. And the other fellow reads twice. He reads the init flag and if it's all good, he then reads the, the good bits and carries on with them. And you know, in the absence of other, uh, of, of other constraints, can anything get reordered here that would cause it to break? And the answer, of course, is yes. Compilers routinely will reorder two reads or two writes if they're unrelated. Standard compi optimizing compiler fare, totally done by the JIT, and C compilers and Fortran and every other compiler on the planet. Um, but I could make that, you know, the init flag volatile and sort of prevent the compiler from reordering the, the two reads and the two writes. And it turns out that is that sufficient? And the answer comes back, well, it's not. And why is that? And that's because the hardware is allowed to reorder operations unless the operation is between the flag and the datum, not after the flag. In this case, you have to make datum volatile, not flag volatile. And here's what happens if you don't. The one thread busily writes datum out, then he writes the flag out, and then he puts a memory barrier down, preventing further reorderings. But the first thread can load the flag, and in the order he's going to load the datum, but the flag will miss in the hardware cache, for instance, and now go to main memory, which will be quite slow. Then the, the you know, hardware predicts that the test will come back true, doesn't know yet, so he speculatively loads the second thing, the good bits, and he gets some stale good bits. Sometime later, the flag comes back true because the first thread got done writing it out, so he says, ah, it's true. So he'll keep the speculatively loaded um, datum bits, which happen to be bad. It's the stale ones. And it's a crash and burn time. So you have to prevent the hardware from reordering, not just the compiler. And that requires a memory barrier between the two reads on the one thread and the two writes on the other. You have to have them on both sides, which fortunately Java Volatile will do. But if I only end up with a memory barrier on one side and not on the other, that is in one thread and not another thread, is it possible to reorder? And the answer is yes. The hardware can reorder on either thread. If I don't reorder the two stores on thread one, I can reorder the two loads on thread two, even if the instructions are executed in order. They, they are, I'm sorry, if the instructions are written in order, they can be executed out of order due to the cache miss scenario I just walked through. If I flip that around, prevent the loads from reordering, but allow the writes to reorder in any order, again, I can fail for basically the same reason. Um, one, thread, one thread can see the flag getting set to true very early on, but the write of the good stuff happens much, much later, so the load of the good stuff actually gets stale bits. You have to have 
uh, barriers on both threads. And this is true of all pieces of hardware and in all kinds of you know, multi-threaded scenarios. It seems maybe counterintuitive, but really it takes two to tangle here. If you have uh, a data race is between two threads, and it's between two memory ops, um, between multiple memory operations on the two different threads, you have to have barriers on both threads and between the different memory operations. Okay, so now let me get some more concrete things. So here are some a couple data races that are the common ones. So the course of 20 years of writing concurrent algorithms, I've run into every possible data race on the planet, and usually lots and lots of them. So there are several that stand out as being the most common, and, and the first one here is by far the most common. I already talked it through once, I'll talk it through again here. Somebody writes, if field is not null, then load field dot do something, usually load a second field from within it. And some other thread is busy setting that field to null as a cache flushing operation. So there are two reads. Thread one is read, test for null, read and go do. Thread two is write a null. That's the race. Um, and very, very common, setting the, uh, the field volatile will not save you from this race. You have to actually only load the field once, not twice. And I'll talk more about that in a minute because it changes your coding patterns. So another common uh, failure mode is the sort of the inverse. You have two writes with a read in the middle. And that seems maybe less obvious how you get there, but a common scenario is I have some collection and I decided to add something to it. And so I do plus plus on a size variable. Now my collection got too big, so I update my array and say array gets new array. Um, and so I have two writes, one of the size variable and one of the array to a larger size. The reader on the other side is trying to get, say, the last element of the array. So he loads the size field uh, to do a size minus one for the index of the last element. Except he loads the size field right after the array got bumped. The size variable got bumped, my apologies. Um, and then he reads the old value, the old smaller value of the array itself. And now he has a small value for the array, a short value, and a longer value for the size, and he goes to the last element, and he gets an array index out of bounds exception and dies. And the final case that shows up is a term called double-checked locking, which hopefully the interwebs beat on so long that everyone knows what it is, but I'm going to cover it here. Because this one includes a lock, and it sounds like it should be totally safe, and yet it's not. So it looks like this. You, you're trying to make a singleton that's expensive to build. So you want to make it lazily, but when you need it, you need it. And after it's built, you want to keep it forever, and everyone who asks for it gets the same singleton over and over again. So the code looks like, if the singleton is null, then oh, take a lock. I don't want to build it twice by accident. Ask again under the lock. So this is the double-checked part of locking. If singleton is null, then go make the expensive new singleton and write it into the, the variable that I'm using for everyone else to see. So the next thread will test the variable and see that it's, in fact, not null and use it directly. Okay, sounds great. How can this fail? So what happens here is the lock puts a barrier between the two reads, as you might expect, of the singleton before and was null. And again, after taking the lock, and you found it maybe still null, you have to go do it. And it puts a second barrier after the singleton gets made and after it got written to your, your global variable. And so you get to catch that. The memory barrier got written after both writes. Writes to the guts of the singleton, the exciting bits you're putting together. Writes to the global variable so that everyone else can find the singleton. There are two writes. 
and the strawberry error happened after both of them, not between them. And that's the race. The barrier has to be between the two rights. So the race condition is simply somebody decides it's time to go make the singleton, and they stuff good bits into the singleton, and then they write the singleton out. And the other thread comes along and reads the singleton, and because it's not listed as volatile, there's no ordering between the two stores and the hardware side, and the hardware chooses for whatever reason to reorder the stores. So the unlucky reader reads the global variable, sees it's not null, but the contents of it haven't been filled in with the good bits yet. They're still left at whatever the pre-initialization uh, bits are in, which in the case of Java is null, in the case of C it's actually random crap bits, and he loads the random crap bits and dies. And the fix is your global variable pointing to the singleton has to be volatile, and that puts a memory barrier between filling up the guts of the singleton and when you publish the singleton by writing it to a global variable. Okay, let me talk a little bit more about the most popular uh, data race on double read. This is the one that says load a field, test not null, and a tiny short time later um, load it again and then do something with it, usually load through it to get some field contents. So there are two loads. They're near each other in space and time, probably near each other in the same function even. Compilers like to do a, an optimization called common sub-expression elimination. Two loads, or two common sub-expressions, it wants to fold them up and do the load only once and use it two places. Once for the null test, once to load a field thread. Great. What this means is if you're coding in C and the compiler's turned off, as in the optimizer's turned off, as in, as in you're running debug mode, you get two loads. And because you have two loads, if you have the right of the null floating about and you put some load testing on it, the data race pops right out and you crash and burn. Then you discover your bug because you're in debug mode and it's easy to find it. However, if you turn on product mode, you typically kick in the optimizer. And as soon as the optimizer is kicked in, the data race is removed by the optimizer and it never crashes in product mode. Okay, not crashing in production is a pretty cool thing, so that's okay. Java has a different problem though. Because what happens in Java is that you get to the crash happens when you're running in the interpreter, but not after the highly optimized JIT kicks in. But the JIT doesn't kick in until the system gets under load. So it's typically the case that right when heavy load hits the system, you get the maximum amount of context switches, and, and the jitting hasn't yet completed, and that's when you're going to crash. However, if you survive that crash, it's commonly the case that you'll go a long, long time because the JIT code has removed the crash. The bug might persist for years before you track it down here. It, it can be very tricky to find these things. So here's another common scenario, and this is somebody getting um, clever with hash map. So I've totally, this is the unsynchronized hash map. Somebody wants to get a little faster, use it in a multi-threaded way, because he's got a single writer, but many readers. And he knows that, you know, because there's only one writer, the mutation's only happening on the one thread who's writing, and the readers can just deal with partially written state by catching, um, you know, the occasional null pointer exception. And I've seen this happen on various kinds of, you know, actual customers in the field kind of thing. So, so the idea here is a faster hash map, no locking since you only have uh, one writer, but sometimes a reader sees half of a put, and they'll throw a null pointer exception occasionally, which you can catch and retry, and the writer will have completed the job, and so the retried put will, retried get will work. But, can also be the case 
that the reader, the writer is in the, in the middle of resizing the table to a larger table, and the reader will compute a hash into the larger table, maybe doing a lookup on the smaller table, and now he'll blow up with an array index out of bounds exception. So it was insufficient to catch the null pointer, which was you know rare but happened. You also had to catch array index out of bounds exception, and this also would happen just so much more rare that the programmer who did this clever hack wasn't catching it. Okay, let me talk uh, about a few different debugging techniques and coding styles here. So the most obvious way to, to go after these bugs people do is just visual inspection. So it's, um, you know, just look at the crash, whatever you have on it. Look at your stack traces. If you're in C, you have core dumps, whatever. The problem here is it's very slow per line of code. Um, you're trying to second guess yourself. You're playing some sort of mental Sherlock Holmes. If this, then that, then that, then this other, then this, then that, and then this got out of order. And, oh, and now I see it, or now I don't. Um, sometimes you get a little more directed search with some good stack traces, but it really doesn't scale. It takes a senior engineer, somebody who's a memory model expert, and maybe a domain expert in the code to kind of work on that one. And the biggest flaw when I get pulled in to look at somebody else's data race is not knowing the players. The person who was maintaining and writing the code couldn't actually name the shared variables. They thought they could, but after I poked at it a little bit, I could point out where some variable would escape into some other you know, thread's accessibility, and suddenly they didn't know what threads could access what variables and when. And that made it very difficult to figure out what data races were at all possible. Um, because it was just all possible variables between these threads in, in these shared structures that they didn't think were shared. And you know that was sort of the, the root cause, but now debugging that would be you know, was this nightmare. Um, and the easiest one to fix, by the way, in this pattern is to see that whole double read. Ignoring whether or not there's a writer, if you see a read of a, of a variable which you know can be written by another thread at some time, don't read it twice. This is where you have to change your code don't have an accessor which says has code and another one says get code because you did two loads at some point in the interpreted version of the, of the Java and the two loads had a chance for a data race with a writer in between. Read it once as a value that you can test for null and if it's null do one thing and it's not null do the other but never read it again. So you have to cache it to a local variable. This same pattern happens if you have multiple things you want to read. You want to read uh, um, you know, some good bits out of something and some init flag somewhere else, you read them all up front first. Then you start testing whether or not they're in some sort of sane state and if they are, act on it. But you never load again after having done any testing of anything you've loaded because by the time you've tested something and you uh, load it again, the test will have failed because the value will have changed. So load them all once, then begin doing your testing and, and figure out what you're going to do. Okay, here's another common scenario that people uh, forget about. So there, there's typically in these large multi-threaded programs, there's what I'm going to call the cycle. And, and the, the cycle can be thought of as, um, you know, an easy example is I have a, a task list and a bunch of threads which are working the task list down. And the task list is whatever URL requests compounding in on my server or whatever it's going to do, basically have a work queue and a bunch of workers. And the workers have this notion that they start up some process, they do the work, and they clean up. And they start, and they do, and they clean up. And so when I'm looking for the data race between the workers, it's commonly, you know, my mental thinking is, 
this guy's starting and that guy's starting and this guy's doing and that guy's doing and this guy's ending and that guy's ending and where's the data race and I look and I look and I look and I can't find it but really the workers are in a cycle the cycle is they start to do the in they start to do the in they start to do the in and if you listen to my words here somewhere in the middle there there's an in start do that I wasn't inspecting that is there, there are probably two workers are kind of chasing each other's tail or one's doing start do in at the same time another one's doing in start do and that's where the data race will show up. Okay, printing. Well, everyone loves to print as a way to go debug when the debugger can't do the debugging. Um, you know, how many times do you have to reach for printf to go find a bug? Okay, for me, bazillions of times. Um, the problem, of course, is that printing changes results, um, especially because the printing often serializes uh, into a single print stream, and that causes threads to you know line up one behind another to get the printing out, and that just hides the data race altogether. So it's great if the data race is loose enough that you can get the printing out, and that does happen for certain. Um, but sometimes the the act of printing hides the data race, you know, hides in bugs. So there is a lower cost version of printing. It's very similar to printing in Spirit, but the implementation is utterly different. Don't write to printf standard out and don't write any kind of complicated string creation. Write tokens, some sort of event token, to a per-thread ring buffer. Okay, why per-thread? No blocking across threads. One thread can't block another. Why a ring buffer? Because it's so darn cheap. There's no allocation. You just bump a pointer and wrap it at the, ring, at the edge of the buffer. Why a token? Because there's no string creation, and creation of objects is actually fairly expensive. So this is like the super low-cost way to write something out. Having written something out like this, how do you use it to debug? Well, you also write out a timestamp with your token. And when the crash happens, you write this giant glob of horrible code that goes across all threads, grabs all the ring buffers, sorts them all by their nanotime timestamps and the event tokens, and lists this out. And 99% of the time, if I go down this very heavyweight technique, uh, the guilty party just stands out. Thread 1 did this, short time later and measured in nanoseconds, thread 2 did that, thread 1 did this again, bang, death, I got it. Out here in plain order. But I had to go to this super lightweight technique to have the crash appear at all. Sorry, super fast technique. It's very heavyweight to go implement it, but it's sort of my, you know, last resort mode, but I definitely have had to pull it out, uh, you know, on more than one occasion. Okay, let me wrap this sucker up. So, so uh, writing data races, it's actually easy to write data races as soon as you bring up that second thread. Um, and it's often hidden by, well, good programming practices. Because you're solving a large complex problem already, um, you want to use abstraction and accessors to give meaning to the memory accesses, the underlying state of the program in the context of this large complex problem you're solving. And also, you have an issue that you want more speed, that's why you grab multiple threads. So you bring in concurrency multi-threading in the context of some very large complicated problem already that you've got a lot of accessors wrapped around the underlying access of what's about to become shared. And you, you fail to recognize that concurrency is its own complex problem, subtle and complex problem. And it needs its own notions of wrappers and access control. So you know, interviewing with data race victims, I, I find it the case that they cannot name the shared variables or know when one thread is allowed to touch what um, in what order. And so the fix for this 
is to start to gather this info and asserting control of the shared variables. Yes, I want to call this code thing a code thing and say I have has code so I can do a get code, but it's also a shared variable with multiple writers coming on. So I also have to handle the case where there's a data race going on here. So now I need to come out and say, this is a piece of shared state. It happens to be conceptually a code object that happens to be multi-threaded reader writer and so a reader can't read it twice and expect it to stay the same on both reads so if I want to read it and do a, a validity check and then use it once it's valid I have to do that in one read only and that giant pile of comments is your starting point to getting this right. Um, some other fun things that are floating around um, you, you can, uh, uh, I have totally locked, unlocked collections just by default. Um, if there's no contention, the lock is actually pretty darn cheap. And if there is contention, you get a little slowdown, but you survive the race, so that part's good. I, I, I have uh, done a version of some of the more common collections where the readers and writers all do a thin lock, a, a cas of a bit somewhere to, to claim that they're busy in the collection and they clear it when they get out. But as soon as I detect a reader and a writer in the collection at the same time, both of them throw an exception and, and die on the spot. And then you catch both the reader and the writer at the same time at the moment of the race. It's really slick. Um, it, it's rarely possible to tolerate a race by reading all the variables up front doing your computation and then rereading them to see if they've changed. And if they change at the end, go back and basically start over and try again. It's more, more like a, uh, a, you know, a transaction where you abort and retry. Um, what other things people use? There's a lot of techniques involving formal proofs, but I have never seen them get ready for, you know, really ready for prime time in any large thing. Um, I have totally diagnosed problems where I got some rare failure, which was measured in so many fails a month, and I could just kind of estimate what kind of thing happens that often. Um, you know, it's a pretty rare, and there are only certain things that happen that rare, but yet happen enough to fail, and that led me on the right path. But I think that the right answer here is, you know, recognize concurrency for what it is. It's a large, complicated problem. Don't get clever and play games with hash maps that are not synchronized and so on. And, and you know, Document your intentions um, because the races, if they're rare and they typically are, um, you won't be necessarily the guy writing, working the code at the time the race triggers. And the, whoever has to debug it needs to know what the intent was of everyone involved. And, you know, this has been Cliff Click, and I wish you the best of luck in diagnosing all of your data races and your everyday coding. Thanks. Bye bye.